Neil Grimmer is brand president of Source Global, innovator of the Source Hydro Panel, a renewable technology that uses the sun to transform water vapor in the air to clean, safe, and perfectly mineralized drinking water. The Public Benefit Company's mission is to bring perfect drinking water to every person, every place, and Neil leads its marketing, consumer packaged goods, and last mile water solutions for community, consumer, and commercial customers in more than 50 countries. Neil Grimmer, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Hey, man, thanks for having me. So we're intrigued by uh, what you do at Source.co, these atmospheric water solutions, as you know, and you might be experiencing now in Arizona and different parts of America, you know, by 2050, 36% of cities will experience water insecurity. Just tell us what Source.co does and how it helps us uh, avoid this water scarcity and insecurity. Yeah, perfect. Well, again, thanks for having me and we're, we're excited. So at Source, we have one core technology, which is called Source Hydro Panel. And if you look at it, it looks like a solar panel. But what it really does is it pulls the water vapor out of the air and then condenses it into liquid water, which we then mineralize for health and taste, and then bring to the end customer, whether that's uh, a village in a remote part of the world or a office building or a hospital that needs water, we plumb it directly in so that people can have access to clean, safe drinking water. And it's done completely off the grid. It relies on the principles of renewable technologies. So it is a solar powered system using photovoltaics. And then we use the energy of the sun to use some of the internal workings of how we harvest the water in a very sustainable and natural way. And today you have projects in over 50 countries around the world? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, we're in over 50 countries, 52 and counting. And, um, and they range really from a broad spectrum of applications. As I mentioned, we do a lot of, of work with remote villages that don't have any infrastructure or have failing infrastructure. I'll give you a, a really good example. We just completed a program with the Navajo Nation where we put hydro panels in 540 homes within the Navajo Nation. And we're able to, for the first time, plumb in water to those homes that have ever had it. Typically, it's a long drive with what's called a carboy, which is a large plastic container that sits on the back of a pickup truck as the primary source of getting access to that drinking water. So now today, we're able to plumb it directly into a spigot where they enjoy a really high quality water within their homes. So it's great. It's like this old idea that's been high tech and it's lovely that it's adaptable in all these different countries. And of course, in America, because a lot of people wouldn't think that America experiences water insecurity. No, that's correct. I mean, water insecurity and water scarcity is affecting all people in almost every part of the world at this point. Today, by 2025, we expect 1.8 billion people to suffer from water scarcity, which means they have no access to clean, safe drinking water within 30 minute walk of their home. And then two thirds of the global population are experiencing water stress, which is to say that they can no longer predictably rely on that water source to either be available and or safe to, to consume. That is where we stand virtually today. You fast forward by 2050. And we expect that to be 6 billion people that have water scarcity. So the rate at which this problem is increasing is far greater than the current infrastructure that has supported water for humans. And that's where innovation 
and rapid deployment of technology at scale is really essential. And that's what we're in the business to do. And explain in terms of the maintenance, how it works. Or is this, I imagine it's primarily in places where you would get sunlight year round. It's just not possible in some countries. Yeah. So the hydro panel itself is roughly the size of a four by eight sheet of plywood in that surface. And what's great is that much like a solar panel, they can actually be ganged together in arrays, which we call water farm. For example, we have a water farm in Dubai that has a thousand panels that produce north of a million liters of perfect drinking water every year. So when we maintain these water farms, we call them water farmers. And so the maintenance really is changing air filters once a year and then just periodically checking on the health of the system. And each panel is networked to our network operating center here in Scottsdale, Arizona. So we actually can keep an eye on each panel that it's performing based on expectation. And all of that data aggregates into a learning machine that we can actually then take and extrapolate out what performance will be in the future for those panels in those fields. And as you contrast to the way others who have access to water, how we receive our water normally, just describe those kind of treatment, which, which don't always make sense to me. So I'm in the Snorin Desert, you know, the, we're in the home of the Hohokam people who created the first set of large-scale irrigation systems and canals. So when you're in the desert, by the very nature of living in the desert, you have to be very innovative about how you get your water. That was true then, and that's it, true now. So Dr. Cody Friesen developed this technology in his lab at ASU, and it was based on a lot of insights that he got from his work in renewables and battery technology that he was doing in, in developing countries, right? Where he saw both water scarcity, but also the solution of actually going fetching water and girls and women primarily doing that, spending, you know, hours a day to go and retrieve water and bring it back. And that is at scale. Now the broad implications are that roughly 200 million hours a day are spent with girls and women fetching water. So when we think of water scarcity, we think of that kind of image and we can kind of understand this technology applied to that as a solution. But the reality is even within Arizona, we have communities that no longer are getting municipal water supplies because of the lack of actual water. And so those communities now need to find alternate sources. And that's where source can come in, where we can scale to raise almost like a micro utility that allows to renewably bring water to those communities. It's a really high quality potable water. So we're able to satisfy most of the drinking water cooking needs within those communities. And you can imagine a future where you connect that hardcore technology with systems of gray water management of water, where you're then reusing and maintaining those water systems and you can have off-grid sustainable homes uh, all around the, this country and around the world. So the applications of the technology are extremely broad. Could it replace what a lot of our other water treatment plants do? Is that feasible? For sure. I mean, our, our grand vision is that our arrays of hydro panels are able to provide utility scale water for communities all around the world. Absolutely. Well, it's a beautiful idea because we get concerned about so many things to do with water. We did interviews about the PFOAs and then arsenic. Some people have arsenic poisoning. There's so many things. I mean, I don't know if it could address all of that. Without question. You know, one of the things we're finding is that when we think about the water issue, it's really multifaceted. So some is just direct not having access to water. Others are that people have access to water, but that water is contaminated. As you talked about PFAS, arsenic, 
you know, Navajo Nation, the water is contaminated by over 50 years of uranium mining. So you can start to see that not only is the water table lower, but in many parts, that water table has contaminants. So we effectively bypass all of that because we're tapping into the renewable abundant water vapor that is in the air. The way in which we bring it into liquid form allows it to be in its purest water molecule form as it converts into liquid drinking water. So we don't have any of those issues of the contaminants that are typically found in water. And then of course, we mineralize the water with calcium and magnesium for human consumption. So it allows for healthy consumption of the water and then obviously the taste. So could this also help with the fight against the desertification process? I, I don't know if there's some complementary activities. One of the things that this does unlock is the ability to think about living in other parts that typically we weren't able to live in. So if you think back in the day, we built civilization around the water hole, lakes, streams, rivers, oceans, and that is largely where we created our communities. And today those communities are far outstretching, meaning the distance and the, from those water sources, but also extracting more water than is largely available in those communities. So what, what's actually really exciting is that a water array, whether it's small two to four panels on a home or a slightly larger array for a community allows us to actually address the water component of living in a place that has a, a largely barren or water desert environment. Yeah, it was interesting because we were talking to uh, Giulio Boccoletti and he wrote the water biography. And as yeah. you were mentioning, the history of water is really it's really our history. It's all of our political institutions. You can trace the availability of water to this. Maybe you'd like to expand about how it's an endlessly fascinating topic for you. For sure. And when, you know, the reason for that is that when you think about the foundation of Maslow's hierarchy needs, water is the source of life. We need water to sustain our lives. So it becomes not only a foundational element of what we need to survive, but it becomes a fundamental human right. So when you think about that, and then you think about where we have grown and progressed in societies, there's a lot of people that have been left along the way that have had no infrastructure, that have not had access to clean, safe drinking water. In the United States alone, we see that over 40% more likely for low-income communities to not have access to clean, safe drinking water. So what I get excited about, what Cody gets excited, our company gets excited about, is that this actually can democratize water because it's now decentralized. It doesn't rely on infrastructure that really is Roman era infrastructure, and it can be deployed anywhere for anyone. And yet there is no difference in that quality of water. It's a really high premium quality of water, which we believe is a fundamental human right that everyone should have access to. Yes. Well, so many of these communities will be relying on bottled water. And I don't know the statistics about how much of our landfills are taken up by bottled water, but yeah. this could significantly reduce it. Without question. Every year there is a trillion plastic bottled water consumed. So think about that and think about the implications of that, both for our oceans and for landfill. And a technology like this really does intercept that because in many cases people are using bottled water either for convenience or they're using it because they don't have any other way of getting water to a location or a remote location to be able to have access to water. And so again, with the ability of having a decentralized technology, we're able to drop in, for example, a remote work site where they may truck in large amounts of bottled water for the people working in that area 
we can put an array in place with a dispenser and have a reusable water container. So now all of a sudden you're getting a premium high quality water. That's fantastic for the people working those remote sites, but then you're cutting down all of that waste. Just tell us about some of those other projects that you have around the world. Absolutely. What's so amazing about working at Source is that we do have the ability to touch people's lives in a really meaningful way with the work we do. All of us who are here are mission-driven, we're purpose-driven. And when I first joined, it was a month before COVID lockdown happened. And I had an amazing experience where we flew out to Colombia to finalize an installation we did for the Wayu tribe, roughly in the northernmost tip of Colombia. And we put a 150 panel array there for roughly 300 people in the village. And we were able to witness an experience, you know, again, girls and women in that village fetching brackish water that needed to be filtered with cloths and things of that nature to make it even remotely potable to then all of a sudden that is turning into a five minute trip to the water farm right next to the community center. That was my first experience at Source. And from there, as we mentioned, we're in over 50 countries doing a wide range of programs. One of them, which can seem in sharp relief to that is we have a thousand panel water farm in Dubai where we are working with a branded bottled water company to bring source water as the first renewable water on retail shelves that then in a very sustainable package. And in contrast, most of the water in Dubai is desalination, right? And which is where a technology that pulls, it's expensive. It uses an enormous amount of energy and then it pumps an enormous amount of brackish salt water back into the ocean which has the impact of affecting that localized area in the marine ecosystem. So what is not very sustainable and the water itself is not very palatable. So we have, again, that wide spectrum of applications, hospital and Jamaica installations that are happening in five-star luxury hotels all around the world in remote locations where the customer's health is of primary concern. So again, you can see the wide range and the way we think about it as it relates to our mission is we're in the business of perfecting water for every person in almost every place in the world. And that's why we are so broad in that application of our technology. Yes. And also as we think into the future, you know, I'm sure wars will be fought, more wars will be fought over water. So it has that nice effect as well that it's bringing peace. Absolutely. That's a nice thought for sure. It is. And I want to drink some of this water because I think it's better for us than what's coming through to me, <laughs> my old pipes and various treatment methods. And tell us a little bit about your path, uh, because previously you were involved in different companies to do with nutrition and even Harley Davidson. And, and yeah. yeah, so I got into business in a, a roundabout way. I was an artist and a musician showing in galleries in, in San Francisco and New York. I was a a sculpture major of all things, conceptual artist. And some of my work caught the eye of someone from Stanford product design program and invited me to be a guest speaker to the product design students. And I immediately fell in love with what they were doing because at the end of the day, we were all using creativity to bring something to world. And I saw the work that was happening at Stanford to create products and services that actually improve people's lives through empathy and understanding now what's called human-centered design, but it's very much similar to an artist's creative process. And so I went 
feet first and jumped in. I got my master's degree at Stanford and then I went to IDEO, which is a design and innovation firm that works globally on solving some of the most intractable problems to solve, but using the same method of human-centered design, which really resonated with me, which is if you can empathically understand what people need, want, and desire, that should be the basis of what inspires you for design. And then your solution at the end should also meet those needs, wants, and desires of that end user of the product. So I had the distinct pleasure of working there for a number of years and then jumped out and started my own company. I went from being a designer to being a dad. And I had two amazing little girls and they inspired me to start a company with a co-founder called Plum Organics, which is one of the leading baby food companies in the United States. We pioneered the squeege pouch baby food for those listeners who've ever used that. And then we grew the company and ended up partnering with Campbell Soup. And Campbell Soup acquired the company and we scaled the business there, reaching all homes in America and abroad. So really exciting journey. I stayed on as an executive at Campbell's for about five years, started another personalized nutrition company called Habit, where we look at your DNA, blood work, and metabolic function to figure out what foods are right for you. And then we created fresh prepared meals, customized to your biology, delivered to your door. So really 23 and me each on meal delivery service. And that exited that business. And uh, most recently I was the global brand president of Harley Davidson. So I've been in service to babies and bikers and shocking overlap between those two. And now with Source, everyone in between. So it's been a really incredible journey. Yeah, you don't hear those. <laughs> often the same sentence. It's exactly. almost like a new company. <laughs> we love to hear about artists and artists are not just dreamers, but I guess you have that in common with entrepreneurs and also artists make things. They know how to, it's like an engineer or something. You know how to put things into the world. It's not all conceptual, but we can do that. So it's nice to hear. No, without question. And I think one of the things that I learned from a mentor, David Kelly, who was the founder of IDEO, was that you really do need, he really had the classic both sides of his brain. He was an artist, he was creative designer, but he also was a mechanical engineer. So he had the ability and tool sets of both. And when I studied with him at Stanford and then ultimately worked with him at IDEO, they took all the artists that came in, which was my entry point in, and we spent two years studying mechanical engineering at Stanford and all the engineers studied art. And so by the end of this, we were all very well-rounded in both sides of our brain and being ambidextrous, if you will, to innovate, come up with novel solutions no one's ever thought about, but then actually make them real. And it's those two things coming together that makes that possible. With that being said, I believe there's a moral code ingrained in the natural world, but it's somewhat been overrun by human nature. A natural moral code is the only reliable moral code that exists because the others are subjective and they can easily be distorted and misinterpreted. For me, it's easier to trust nature in determining those certain basic moral codes because they can be referred to abstractly, especially when other larger issues ensue. That's why the natural moral code is crucial. It provides for us a basic sense of what is right and what is wrong with an unbiased authority that reinforces it. We mustn't promote a society in which everyone thinks the same way, but the opposite. And that is at the crux of Source.co. There's a danger that exists in the territory of not challenging the status quo and not challenging the culture that prevails. 
And as we can see, it's led to a state of the world in which two-thirds of the global population live in water stress. But we can creatively think of innovative ways to stay in line with this natural moral code, which not only requires us to take care of the environment, but to self-preserve and to preserve our communities. If such a large portion of the world lives in water stress, then one way we must do that is by following Source's lead and using our creativity to come up with solutions to provide that access of clean water to everyone. I really appreciate you speaking on your journey and how you've gotten to the point where you are now and doing all the social work that you're doing. And like you said, I think everyone brings something to the table by means of their creative intellect. And so I'm curious, do you think that artists have some kind of obligation to turn their work into something that directly influences the problems that we're collectively dealing with? Must art always be functional, do you think? I think art is essential to all cultures. We know that. We go back to the earliest parts in history. Art has played a role in culture. And some are directly obvious in how they shape and impact people's lives, and others are more peripheral. But I think artists are essential to any society. And even increasingly, when you think about the reflection that an artist can bring at a societal level, even through an idea, a picture, an icon, something that makes people think about the world differently, that in and of itself, I think is transformative. When you start thinking about, like we were talking a bit earlier, the skill set of an artist and the multidisciplinary aspect of how many artists really have to not only create, but also survive in the world. Then you start to see the power of what artists can do, whether it is coming up with new ideas that can change people's lives or being part of a movement to shape ideas and perspectives that help evolve society. Artists have always been critically important in that. And I'm excited because I think the world we live in today needs creativity, it needs innovation, and it needs it at a rapid pace. And I think artists are uniquely, uh, artists and entrepreneurs, as you talked about before, are uniquely positioned to step into that. Yeah, definitely. And I think that at the crossroads of creativity and innovation, as well as entrepreneurship, is this critical thinking. It's really important there. There's this designer, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. His name is Tony Fidel. He's a product designer. And he talks about how one of the biggest challenges as a designer is even noticing the problems with things that sort of become like this functional white noise to the average person. Um, and so that's fixing the problem. But how did you get good at noticing the problems in the first place that need to be fixed? It's an excellent point. Tony, obviously, is brilliant. One of the things that actually I'll go back to the, the Stanford days again. David Kelly had us carry a little notebook and he called it the bug list. So as you're walking around as a designer, you catalog all the things you look at and you're like, hmm, that seems a little odd or that's a problem. I think I can fix that. And you actually train yourself to see what others don't see. You train yourself to look at a subtle nuance of something that could spark the next big idea or the behavior of somebody doing something. For example, we were looking at infant formula and the process of making up a bottle of infant formula is very complex, multi-stepped, you know, you scoop, tap, scrape off the top, measure, heat the water, all these things. And if you were to ask a new mom or new dad, is there anything wrong with infant formula and its construction, they'd say, oh no, it's, it's pretty straightforward. And so that's an opportunity for innovation, an opportunity to step in and transform the experience in a way that people think when it's designed, it's intuitive and so straightforward. You hear them all the time. People say like, why haven't I thought of that? It's so straightforward. And it's because 
the designer and the artist see the subtlety in things that take that and transform it into something transformative. And I guess also from the consumer standpoint, how can we better incorporate that thinking about these subtleties into our thinking that we can hold companies accountable for doing more of the social Mm -hmm. work and really valuing community and public health more? The first thing I always say is consumers should vote with their dollars. They should not only purchase great products and experiences that fill a need they have or a want or a desire, but we should find companies that are a good citizen, a good neighbor in the world that we live in. So that idea that when you back a company that has a mission to change the way kids eat for the better, bringing organic to the masses, or I have the good pleasure to be here at Source where the work we do here changes people's lives every day because they get access to clean, safe drinking water. Consumers can back those companies just by purely buying their product or service so they can do more of that good work. That's one thing. Second, and it's connected, is know what companies you're bringing into your home and know what they care about and see if it aligns with your values and your beliefs. And I think all of those things are are out there. But I would say to anyone listening here, innovation is not exclusive to artists or entrepreneurs. And that opportunity to see something that could be changed, could be better, could be more brilliant, could make people happy, could fix a problem. That's the purview of everyone in the world, right? And so innovation and entrepreneurship can spring from everywhere. It did for me. And I know you're an artist, love your work, and these things are available to everybody. And so I would encourage people to jump in. Thank you for, I appreciate what I have in my ongoing series. It's called The Memory of Water. So we might have that in common. (laughs) Exactly. Not the memory, but it's true. It's upon all of us. We were having some conversations recently about the concept of degrowth, which to some people is utopian. And I don't know how we can get there. The circular economy, we have all these little bits and how can it all work together? I still have yet to see it. I don't know what your reflections are that. It's not really (laughs) your main focus, but it's something I, I wish we could just make that transition? I think one of the things that has been so impactful of working in the renewables world, like we do here at Source, is that you you can create ecosystems that can solve people's needs and you can do it in harmony with nature in a way where it's not the consumption model where we leave a trace of everything we consume. And I think that's the first foremost what comes to mind when I think about you know, degrowth is just, you know, starting to think about how we consume and what trail we leave behind through that consumption, right? And so minimizing that impact, doing it in harmony with nature, finding ways to, in the case of water, reduce and reuse living in the United States. Those are concepts, but you can easily see someone leaving the tap running for a little bit longer than they should. And we don't even think twice about it. And for that duration of that tap running, that could be someone's only water they have that day. So bringing awareness to our consumption patterns and our behaviors, I think is a really important part of that. And you think of the water race to make a pair of jeans, how many gallons of water? Yeah, and a lot. Is it really necessary? I just don't understand that. Well, this is the opportunity, right? Where historically the answer would have been yes, because that's the way things are always done. And, but I do know a lot of companies in that industry are looking to reinvent the process. It's an innovation opportunity based on a sustainability issue. So that's the moment where someone in that supply chain says, you know what, I can actually make that pair of jeans function exactly the way I need to look exactly the way I need to do and use half the water. And it's this new innovation that they've come up with, make it happen. Those are the opportunities. And that's what we increasingly need to focus on. We have the good pleasure of working with a lot of large-scale companies that 
have water in part of either the end product they use or in the process by which they produce their product. And everyone is extremely focused on what we call the three R's, which is reduce the amount of water being used, reuse the water that is being used so that you can get more utility or life out of that water. And the third one, which is tricky for most of the people that we're engaged with is replenish. How do you replenish the earth's water table or bring more water back to the equation? And a lot of companies are talking about being water positive, effectively a same kind of concept of carbon neutral, but with water, meaning they want to be able to put more water, as much water back into the system that they're pulling out of the system. And so again, renewable water technology like source has been able to be a really important part of that conversation. And this is a little bit, you know, it's next door to it. We think about rising sea levels and, and what are your reflections on that? I don't know if source has other projects. We certainly work with communities that are impacted by rising sea levels. Also, we work with communities that are looking for what we call climate resilient water solutions, which is where water once was coming down in rainfall in predictable ways. That isn't happening as much. The weather patterns are changing, which means water patterns are changing as well. Right. So we're seeing climate change really affecting both aspects of that. And with rising sea levels, you can see communities that are very close to ocean edge, having brackish water in their water table. So you can start to see impacts like that. You can also see areas that used to have very predictable monsoon seasons becoming somewhat unpredictable or where people would collect water and, or with water capture methods, or it would just replenish earth's water table through that cycle. And those are becoming increasingly more unpredictable. So our core technology, the hydro panel works in very arid environments and also in high humidity environments. So no matter what the condition is, as long as there's air, sunlight, and it's not frozen, hydro panels can produce water. So we end up being what we call a climate resilient water solution where we will work even when those kinds of conditions are happening around the communities that we serve. And you went in a little bit about projects with indigenous communities, and it seems very adaptable to not modernizing communities that might be resistant to being owned. But I don't know, is, is that delicate? It is always delicate. And I think it's because historically there hasn't been a reverence for those cultures and those people and their way of life. And so we are, we're very thoughtful about how we play a role in their water solutions. So for example, technology is a part of the solution, but it is really people in those communities that are the ones creating that solution, sustaining that solution. And so I go back to that human centered design that we were talking about using empathy and understanding to really understand the people that we were bringing water to, how best it fits in their community. How does sharing happen of water or not? How do we think about where people access the water? And that all needs to be driven by the community, right? As opposed to us. And we spend a lot of time partnering with those community leaders to make sure we're getting that right. And in terms of the rollout, it's very successful, like in over 52 countries. Who do you partner with to enable that kind of growth? Well, we've been really fortunate to have a number of incredible partners around the world. But to name a few, we've had the good pleasure of doing programs with Conservation International, World Wildlife Foundation, USAID. And those organizations are really on the ground and seeing the need and have the interface with the communities we can serve, you know, working with USAID on bringing water to Syrian refugees in Lebanon and Jordan, where we put hydro panels on the roof of orphanages. 
so that they could have clean, safe drinking water. And that was really facilitated by that connection, by being on the ground there. We did a program in the Philippines, in Palawan, with a very rural community that most of the water they have access to was making them sick. So chronic diarrhea, things of that nature. And Conservation International was able to help facilitate us bringing in uh, a hydro panel water farm for that community and putting it in a community center right by the school. So those children and then the broader community could have access to clean, safe drinking water. So I really, it's our partners that make all of this possible. Most recently, we did a project with Starbucks in Timor-Leste in a very mountainous region where they grow a very particular coffee bean. And that landscape is very rugged and the fetching of water is very treacherous. And when the village, the Dohoho village, we're able to put in a 30 panel water farm and plummet directly into the village center. And that enabled the girls and women that historically fetched water and then fetched firewood to boil the water for sanitization, to free up time and energy to do other things and bring prosperity to themselves and their family. Yeah, so it really has all these carry-on effects. And you mentioned Syria. I don't want to tell you things that you already know, but the research is showing that conflicts in the Middle East, such as the Syrian civil war, were due in part to severe droughts, climate change, water mismanagement, desertification, and it's created these conflicts. So it's really a kind of peace-building mission. Correct. Uh, 100%. I love that notion. It's a very beautiful notion that water solutions, from certainly from source and others, can be part of bringing peace to people. And again, it comes down to making sure that people's access to clean, safe drinking water, fundamental human right is met. And when you meet those fundamental human rights, people tend not to go into conflict. Oftentimes people go into conflict when those things are scarce. So anyway, it's a, it's a lovely thought and an extension of the mission for sure. So where do you want to be in terms of the long-term goal of source or your five, 10 year plan? And I think we. We really see a vision in a future where a set of more sustainable water technologies combined together can really transform the way we think about water, water access and water usage. Hydroloop is a company that does gray water management with very natural processes without any kind of unnecessary filtration and things of that nature. So you can imagine a future, a smart home of the future where you have source hydro panels creating the water and then smart technology to reuse the water in a gray water system, where all of a sudden, all of the needs in that household are being met completely off grid. That is a future that we see within the next five years in no uncertain terms. You can see a future where communities have large scale water farm array in places that quite frankly, we're living in the Sonoran desert where water has been brought through irrigation and systems, but from the salt river. But the reality is that water tables are increasingly declining and access to that water is increasingly become problematic. So we see utility service level water coming from source hydro panels and that in India, we see that in Africa, we see that even in the United States. That's the grand vision and done in harmony with nature in the most sustainable, renewable way possible. And I don't know the statistics on this, but obviously so much is lost in the grid through energy. I don't know how much is lost through bringing water in. There's a lot of loss. There's a lot of, you know, water is heavy. It is hard to manage and it is the thing of life, which not only sustains our life, but things grow in water. So when you think of what it takes to use Roman era technology, and in many ways, technology hasn't changed a whole lot since then when 
aqueducts were created. It is very energy intensive to move water. And then there's a lot of energy and other byproducts of actually trying to sustain the health and the safety of that water through sterilization techniques, filtration, and things of that nature. So there's an enormous amount of energy. There's a cost structure around water that we are not exposed to. Water is less than a penny a gallon. You know, it's a fraction of a penny a gallon. And yet the cost structure around that water is so much greater. So that's what you're starting to see when there isn't infrastructure and new infrastructure, water infrastructure needs to be put in place. The sheer enormity of that investment starts to get outweighed by bringing in something like a hydro panel technology, where it's kind of like telephonics talking about putting up more telephone poles when we're bringing in 5G cellular. So that's really where we start to take the waste and the cost and the energy out of the system by deploying this kind of technology for water solutions. And it can really be deployed on scale outside of cities. It can't be like in a crowded metropolis. <laughs> uh, how does that work in just the design process? So obviously land is an important part of the factor for us, but the surface area is an important part of factor for us where roofs of buildings is an area where we can deploy hydro panels where you can plumb directly into a building. So you can imagine a more urban context. That's a way to bring water directly into that building itself. Certainly on the perimeter of urban centers, water farms are able to provide water and then brought into that city center or other ways. The great thing is that because it's infinitely scalable and it's decentralized in its nature, we can create customized solutions pretty much wherever we install them. It's really beautiful. I think that people also benefit a lot, not just from healthier water, more sustainable, but when people know the source of their food, if they're able to the rooftop farm or they know the source of the water, there's something, I don't know if it's spiritual, but well, there's a sense of well-being anyway, from just being aware of that. Without question. I mean, I have two hydro panels on the roof of my home in Phoenix, Arizona, and all of my drinking water, cooking water comes from them. And it is really grounding. It's like you're doing your little box farming in your house, except we're just doing water farming. And it's pretty wonderful in that way. You're committed to sustaining this planet, the beauty and wonder of the natural world. What are some of your earliest memories, the kind of world that you want to preserve for the next generation? Raising two daughters is the first thing that comes to mind. It's one of the brightest parts of my life. It's the most fulfilling parts of my life. And watching them experience the world in the purity they bring to it is something that any parent wants to preserve as long and as far as possible. And I think the work that we do here is for our children's children's children, right? I mean, that is really what we're talking about. And right now, when you forecast out, there's going to be an enormous amount of challenges that these generations are going to face in getting access to those fundamental human needs and rights, which water is clearly one of them. And so I love images of my daughters and I in our little backyard farm in Oakland, California, where they're learning to grow something. And the miracle and the beauty of that in its smallest, most precious way is the thing of life. It is the thing that I think we all, as you said, almost spiritually connect to that process. And I think we need more of that energy and we need more of that activity that we can all experience along with these very scaled solutions that we're talking about here. Yes. And as you think of the kind of world that you'd like them to live in, the kind of world that we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Well, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I think our next generation, creativity and innovation comes from, in many cases, the youth of, of our cultures and, and catalyzing and activating young people, their minds, their creativity 
to solve these problems that will need to be solved for generations to come is an exciting idea to me. I love that. It's an enduring quality of humans that we innovate, we create. And I think I'm really excited to see what, what comes of that. Well, thank you, Neil Grimmer, for sharing your sense of wonder and positivity and artistic spirit and applying your entrepreneurship to providing solutions to help solve water scarcity and how we can better manage this most valuable resource that gives life to everything. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you, Mira. Thank you, Mia. Appreciate being here. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Molshowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Mira Potla with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Mira Potla. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. And if you would like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.